This episode of Let's Talk Period is brought to you by the Quendo app, available now on the app and Google Play stores across Australia and New Zealand. Record and track, we've got your back. Search Quendo in your app store today. Welcome back to Let's Talk Period, the podcast for people who want all things real, raw and reputable. This week, I sat down with Alyssa Harris. Alyssa is a mum and she's trying to navigate the present over finding a perfect way of life, finding her way through motherhood and her new identity, having recently undergone hysterectomy due to suffering from fibroids. Alyssa is warm and bubbly and when she reached out to share her story, we just knew we had to get her on the podcast. Alyssa wanted to share her story to do so in the hope that she can bring awareness to others and let them know that they're not alone. In this episode, we talk on how Alyssa came to know she had fibroids, as well as her debilitating experience with them, which ultimately led to her needing a hysterectomy. We also talk on Alyssa's top tips for pre and post hysterectomy, as well as navigating the unexpected grief and coming to terms with your sexuality when a part of you that is linked to your identity as a female is no longer there. Alyssa is so vulnerable, open and honest in this episode and she really shares a lot and so I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Here's Alyssa. Alisa, welcome to Let's Talk Period. I am absolutely stoked to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking to you. Let's dive into it. The first question we always ask our listeners is what have you done to nourish your body today? So can you share with us what that's looked like for you today? It's really funny. I think that um, for me, um, it's, it's a really good question. For me, I actually have rested. So um, being three and a half weeks now post my hysterectomy I think that I've really had to teach myself how to properly rest and um when to do that as well and when sort of listen to my body a little bit more um so I think for me this morning it looked like lying in bed for a bit um reading a book I've started reading again which has been really great for me um for my mental health and forces me to relax um for me to answer that question is allowing myself to rest when I need it. And this morning I needed it and I did it. I was lucky enough to be able to just sort of take that time for myself. Um, and also I went for a walk. So I've just started walking by myself um, around up and down the street. And this morning I did a block. So I did a little blocky and I feel good about that. So um, yeah, just sort of learning my body and my what it's capable of as well. So I felt like I was strong enough to do that and I did that so setting my setting my goals for the day which are a lot smaller than what they probably were prior to the operation but yeah that's how I nourished myself today. It's so important to set goals and you know they look different for everybody and different on any given day as well yeah especially you know post hysterectomy that's a procedure that you know you can't just dive back into normal life straight away you do really need to hold the space for yourself and take that time to rest 
And I think, you know, I was getting frustrated with myself because, you know, I had like a 75-year-old 70, neighbour who lapped me twice up and down the street and it was just like, oh, well, what must they be thinking? And, you know, I'm just going so slow that people, my neighbours must be thinking what's going on, but letting that go a bit and just sort of just doing what you've got to do to for your mind and your body. So, um, yeah, I think that that was really important for me. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way. They feel frustrated post-op because, you know, they might not be healing as quickly as they want to or they used to be able to do all of these things that now that they suddenly can't do while they're recovering and it's just sort of a bittersweet thing. Like it's a positive that they've had the surgery but also they're feeling a little bit helpless and down in the dumps. So I definitely think you know, you taking that into perspective and just, you know, letting that go is so important. I think um, for me, the first week I found really physically challenging. The second week, oh, definitely more mentally challenging. I don't think I left my room for, you know, yeah, it was very limited that I left just my space. So I felt like I really needed that. I needed to allow myself just to sort of um, sit in it. Um, a friend that I work with refers to, um, you know, sitting in the shit when you need to and, like, just sort of sitting and allowing it to happen. And um, I'm very much a it's fine, it'll be okay, I'll be fine sort of person and just persevere and don't give things much weight. Um, but I really felt like I needed to just sort of sit and allow myself to just be like, oh, this is, this is pretty shit what I'm going through, but, you know, I know that I will be okay. That's a really important thing. And I love the I love the phrase that your friend had. It's so important and so true. Yeah, yeah. It's it really stuck with me. And sometimes I can really sort of I'm learning to learn my own triggers as well with my own mental health. And I can sort of see when it's getting to that point where I'm like, Oh, I need to acknowledge that this is happening rather than just, you know, burying it down. So I had a pretty poor week the second week. Um, had a psychologist appointment and felt really good ever since then so that's obviously what I need regularly at the moment yeah and listening to your body and checking in with yourself and knowing what you need at any point in time is so important yeah and asking for it as well you know I um I had a bit of an issue where I felt like I was being needy you know I you know I I felt like I was feeling really lonely during the second week and but I didn't want anyone to help me at the same time so it was this weird emotion where I felt really lonely and I wanted to be by myself but I didn't at the same time so just working out that and um, allowing myself to feel emotional and to feel like I need to have um, reassurance I think. You touched on some really important points there and I'm glad that you did and something we often talk about is having a toolkit of therapies and strategies and items that might help us to manage our health so what is something that you would recommend to our listeners to add to their health toolkits to help them with managing their health really great question I think my toolkit looked pretty poor prior to the sur- prior to my surgery or just finding out what was going on with my body yeah, it sort of gets to a point with these sorts of issues where you start to feel a bit defeated. Um, I think, you know, you can uh, go to your GP and 
I think for me, looking back, I probably should have put more emphasis on finding a regular GP. Um, I sort of just bounced around to different GPs and would just go to the local, you know, bulk billing clinic and see whoever was on. And they all had different opinions about um, my symptoms or, you know, what they were going to do or whether they would sort of dismiss it or, you know, sort of follow through with the things that they said. So I think in hindsight, it would be finding a really good medical team and sort of committing myself to that um in terms of support I think having a really good group of not even a group just someone you can talk to about your issues I think with periods or these sorts of problems it's so individual and I think that that's where it's really hard to find like a benchmark of pain or differences when it comes to periods because there's really no way of comparing it um you know, I think with pain or heavy bleeds or the emotional side effect of having a period, you know, all of that combined, everyone has a different story. So listening to your body and sort of backing yourself as well when you know things aren't right, I think that um, it can be dismissed a lot of the time. So I think just really sort of backing yourself and going, I really don't feel like anything's, you know, that things are right. Yeah. In terms of what other things for a toolkit, for me, exercise, just walking and um, listening to podcasts, um, resting when you have to. I think, yeah, my cycle was really out of whack sort of the past five months, hence why I had the operation. I was sort of in a cycle in which I had three weeks in the cycle of a month. I had three weeks of bleeding and one week of not bleeding or spotting and then three weeks. So altogether, I was had my period for about five months coming into my surgery so yeah there wasn't really much anyone could do at that point because I was just a hot mess so um yeah how I got through that time I'm not really sure but you just got to do what you've got to do yeah Uh, you have to be your biggest advocate sometimes and you're your own support person pushing yourself through at times and then you look back on periods of time and you're like, wow, I did that. How on earth did I make it through that? People would say, you know, that's really awful. You know, I can't believe you've had your period for that long or what you're going through is really awful. But I I sort of wanted to put on this brave face and look resilient, mm. um, which I guess that I am. But all the side effects that comes with that, you know, the, uh, the mental aspects of that and the physical aspects of that. So, mm. yeah. And also having... Yeah, having someone to talk to, doesn't matter who it is, as long as someone that will listen um, yeah. and be non-judgmental as well, which is which is really hard. I think that's really difficult. Um, and a really great medical team, if you can. There's so much value in listening to others and seeing what's worked for them. And, you know, there might be a strategy or a therapy that they've tried that's really been a benefit to them that you might not necessarily have never heard of before or until you've had that um you know friend or personal experience that you're not open to trusting that it actually could work for you so it is so important to talk and share and connect with what works for one another and also I think with a lot of the symptoms that I had it's it makes me feel a bit crazy you know like why why am I so bloated And there's no reason for that. You know, I'm going to have all of these tests done and it's all coming back as normal. But I know that I'm not normal. Well, I know that I'm not presenting 
what maybe normal would look like. So this isn't normal for me. And I think that's really important to learn. And I hope that I'll continue to learn through, you know, through life is what what's not normal for me rather than what's not normal for you. Exactly. Mm. And it's also very draining and emotionally and physically, like you yes. said. Yeah. Having a period for five months is tiring and your body's using a lot of energy and a lot of nutrients are being depleted there. So yeah. you do that enough is enough I completely understand and appreciate how you would be feeling so sometimes you don't want to try anything else you just want to try your best to get it sorted I think the best thing for me was it was only earlier this year when I had a lot of issues through my pregnancies um which yeah I'm sure would have yeah I'm sure I probably should have had a good gynecologist at that point so it was only earlier this year where my stepmom sort of said oh maybe you should see a gynecologist and I never really thought that these issues could present in such different ways. Um, and then when I saw the gynecologist and he just said, you know, this, this and this, it makes sense that you'll be feeling this way and having these symptoms. And that just felt so good knowing that someone could understand my perspective and just gave it like the, the fuel to the fire that I needed, I think. You didn't really know what was going on with you until earlier this year. Can you sort of take us through that process of how you ended up with the hysterectomy and what led you to that and all the bits and pieces that go along with <laughs> Literally it? Literally all the bits and pieces. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'll start back, I guess, when I, I was trying to think when I first started having issues with my period. I always seem to have a heavy period. Like at school, I was always that girl that, you know, if somehow I would get blood on my school dress. Like it would just happen and I'd, it would just always happen. <laughs> and it would just be so embarrassing. And, you know, I don't even know, I would, I would wear all of the sanitary items and still it would get everywhere. And, you know, already when you're going through sort of those times being a teenager, it already depletes your confidence. So I think it started from back there. Um, and then prior, probably when I was about 25, I noticed that my periods were sort of irregular. I had been on the pill for, since I was about 18 and they sort of, I just sort of, I can't really remember really back then, but I'll try. But, um, yeah, I think my, they wanted to test me for endometriosis. So I had a laparoscopy, which was my first, first laparoscopy when I came out of there and a DNC and they said, you know, everything was fine. There was nothing there that they could see. Um, but be careful and try not to get pregnant because you'll get pregnant really quickly um, because we've just done a full, you know, full clean out in there. So it's good to go. And of course I got pregnant the following month. So um, that was really exciting news, but I think it came a little bit quicker than what I expected. Um, my pregnancy was okay up to the yeah it was pretty good up to about um 30 weeks and then I found out that I had fibroids growing in there so um the fibroids were actually growing with my baby and got to the same size as my first daughter so they obviously grow off what I know of the um the hormones and then I was told that once I once she was born, they should shrink again. So they should go away. Oh, sorry, they wouldn't necessarily go away, but they'll shrink. And they really shouldn't affect me at all. Um, so I had her, she was breech and she came early. So I had a cesarean 
Um, she was really little, um, but yeah, then I forgot about them. I didn't really have any issues post-pregnancy. And then I was pregnant with my second daughter um, and that was two and a half years later. And I had quite heavy bleeds when I was pregnant. Um, I hemorrhaged at six weeks and 11 weeks. And they think that it probably has to do in hindsight, maybe with the fibroids at that point. Was that scary? I can imagine Awful. just alarm bells in oh. my head freaking out. Awful. And I, you know, I'm, I've been pretty lucky that I haven't had any scares with miscarriages. But at those two points, I was convinced that I was having a miscarriage. I really couldn't really understand how a baby could survive that with the amount of blood that I lost. So I remember one of it being at work and I hadn't actually told anyone that I was pregnant. And then I came out of the toilets and, you know, there was, I was sort of really covered in blood and I had to tell my manager, well, I'm pregnant and can you take me to the hospital? <laughs> so that sort of was a strange way of breaking the ice. Lucky I've got a really amazing workplace, which has been really helpful. Um, and then at 11 weeks, I was on holiday in Tasmania walking around Salamanca markets and had a massive bleed then. So, yeah, that was really awful at that point. Um, so then from there on, I had to have internal ultrasounds with my pregnancies because of the fibroids. And I had internal ultrasounds up to about 28 weeks. Um, and then I stopped feeling movement. So, I, yeah, and that was a real sort of, that raised the flags a bit. So I actually was 10 days prior to having my cesarean. I was put in hospital just to, for them to monitor the, to do the monitoring. Um, and that was just a lot of the midwives coming up sort of doing the Doppler. Is that yeah. what it's called? Doing the Doppler and managing, like looking for the heart rate and me sort of saying, them being so surprised that I couldn't feel anything. And they were like, how can you not feel that? Like there's some real kicks and movement and everything. And I just couldn't feel anything. And it, that also made me really go, what's wrong with me? Why can't I feel this? And it really doubts your, the capability of your body, I think, and your mindset over it. And at that point I was super anxious. And I think I got to the point where I was like, I just need this baby out because I'm just so anxious all the time and on edge. Um, so then I had my little girl and when I got to recovery, I immediately had this pain in my pelvic area. And I was on the recovery table saying, something's not right. You know, I know there's something's not right. And they sort of said, you know, it's your second cesarean. You know, this can happen. It can be more painful second time around. So I sort of just thought, okay, well, that's just the way it is. Move on. Don't make a fuss. Just keep going. Um, and then, you know, we came home. Everything was fine. She was fine. But I still felt like something wasn't right. And I was still having quite a bit of pain. So I kept going back to the hospital saying, you know, I feel like there's something strange, you know, I just have a lot of pain and I'm getting sort of like tingling down my legs and it just felt really odd and very different to the first time. So that sort of just kept happening. I never really felt 100%. I then developed postnatal depression um, and I, in hindsight, I probably think that, that they probably coincided with each other, mm. you know, my physical health and my mental health and... um then sort of battled that for a little while and got the support that I needed through that, which was really good. So at that point, I was sort of getting to the point where I was having really bad pains in my tummy and I was becoming really bloated and I couldn't quite work out what was going on. And I, you know, had all the tests done, colonoscopy, gastroscopies, find anything. I just sort of, my periods were somewhat okay at that point. Um, 
but yeah, I just sort of was losing faith in my ability to recognize what was right and wrong with my body. And I think that just all sort of intertwined with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it got to about the end of probably middle of last year and the bloating was just getting out of control. Like I was, I was then having gluten tests and all of that stuff that you sort of the roads that you go down to try and figure out what was going on. And that was all coming back negative. I wasn't really eating that much, but I was still putting on weight and I couldn't really figure out what was going on there um, and all around my tummy section. Um, and that would vary in terms over the course of the my cycle. Yeah, so then by December last year to January, that the real sort of trigger for me was probably having that prolonged period. So it got to a point of me having my period for 12 weeks and I thought, this is really strange. So it got to the 12-week point and I got a referral to the gynecologist um, and he sort of, it was sort of really went really quick from there. So he then said that I had I had an internal ultrasound, which I've had plenty of them done before. Um, I had about four fibroids at that point. But um, the thing about fibroids is that it, what I've been researching is that it's actually, you can have them and they can't, a lot of the time they don't really come up as symptomatic, I think. Um, so a lot of people can live with them and not know that they have them. Um, so that was really interesting because when I was told during the pregnancies, I just assumed that they wouldn't be a problem for me um, because that's what I was told. So I, I really put a lot of faith into the medical teams and you listen to what they say because, you know, I don't know anything about my own body or um, and listen to their sort of guidance. So then I, yeah, so then I had the internal ultrasound. He said I had some fibroids that they were probably bigger than what they would have liked um and at this point I had shocking back pain like lower left back pain um and I couldn't quite explain what was going on with that too and I spent a lot of time in bed um and then I'd try and walk it out and then I found that nothing was quite working like exercising walking lying down I was like the amount of times I would toss and turn in bed and feel like my whole I literally felt like I was pregnant again like I'd literally have to get up sit up move my body lie back down again and I'd have to do that several times throughout the night and I just was really restless Mm -hmm. and feeling like I just I, I looked pregnant a lot of the time um and I wasn't quite sure how so then from that point we then I had to have another laparoscopy and to have histoscopy. I'm still getting my head around the medical terms. Um, And I was booked in about five weeks later. And this was all through the public system, which, you know, I'm very thankful for. I've been really lucky. And I had the laparoscopy and went in pretty comfortable. You know, I feel like I'd had two cesareans before. What's another laparoscopy really? (laughs) There's been so much trauma that to that area, you know, what's what else more can happen? So went into the laparoscopy, woke up and, you know, had a fair a decent amount of pain, probably more so to my cesareans. Um, and I overheard them say, Oh, you know, that they, they couldn't do the histoscopy and I you know, they just kept saying, you know, there was a failed histoscopy and I was really fixated on that because you don't go into a surgery to then have it fail, you know, mm. or for it not to be done. So that sort of really, really grinded my gears for quite a while until I could talk to the doctor. Um, so what had happened was the laparoscopy was fine. Um, my ovaries were fine. I had no endometriosis, um, but they couldn't do the histoscopy because they couldn't get up my cervix. 
because I had at that stage cervical stenosis which is a narrowing of the cervix and my cervix was completely blocked so it's completely closed um, and what they had to do from there was actually create a fake passage a false passage so they then I don't know what they do but they then had to go around the cervix and try and find another alternative way to do a biopsy of my fibroids and my uterus um, at this point, I sort of didn't think that cancer was really an option. Like, I didn't realise that that was what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that they give you very limited information, which is, like I said, a good and bad thing. Um, so from there, the histoscopy was had failed and they couldn't do the biopsy. So at that point, they were more worried um, and then they sort of fast-tracked my hysterectomy. Mm. Um, have you got any results back from your biopsy? Have they been able to do I anything do. yet? Yeah. yeah, I do. So I have had, that was part of the reason why I had the hysterectomy was to get in there and take it out. So um, it all came back clear, which was great. Um, That's so good. Just, yeah, really reassuring. But, um, yeah, so at that point, I think also he said, my gynecologist said that they had my uterus and my cervix had a lot of trauma. Um, I don't really know what that means, but um, there'd been a lot of trauma going on down there. So um, I think he said it was going to get worse before it got better. I didn't really have many options at that point. I think when someone says to you, you know, we can't do a biopsy, we're concerned about it, it seems to be getting worse, let's just get it out. I think at that point I didn't really give myself many choices. Well, it's hard to know what other options are out there. There's not as much information around fibroids and what can go wrong or what you're looking for or how you can manage that condition as well. Yeah. For my own peace of mind, you know, I, I, I do remember having a moment after when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was in hospital the second time around and I looked in the mirror and I looked at myself pregnant and I had this very clear moment where I was, where I thought to myself, I'm never going to do this again. Like I, it's, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to carry a child again. Um, just with all the, I think, all the issues I had with that pregnancy. And I have this, you know, this visual, this visualisation of this is going to be the last time this is going to happen. So, mm. you know, I do feel very fortunate that I obviously do have two kids, um, which is great. But also for me, it was getting my head around the the finality, finality or like the the fact that that choice has been taken away from me. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of like grieving that choice to decide to add to your family further. Yeah, absolutely. And also um, for me it was this whole notion of my identity and sexuality as well, which I sort of didn't think I had to sort of really sit on that for a little bit like, oh, am I still going to be attractive Which is, or am I going to be attractive, which is ridiculous because who looks at someone and go, oh, they have a, a sexy uterus or the uterus is really sexy. No one would ever know. So yeah, I don't know why exactly. it was such an, such an issue for me um, and it no, still is an issue for me. So that'll be something that I'll have to work on. Yeah, but that's something that a lot of people post-hysterectomy have to come to terms with and something that they work through quite often. And it's something that lots of people don't talk about because, you know, I guess, well, it's again the gynecological area, um, uteruses, pelvises are very taboo still and there is a lot of stigma around talking about those issues. So, again, that layer of sexuality is 
another taboo topic and not something that's spoken about very often. And I think for me, it was this really weird notion of, okay, well, I'm too young to have a hysterectomy. I'm, like, I'm only 33, but I'm actually not that young. You know, there's a lot, there's people that have had hysterectomies a lot younger than me. So it was this real sort of, um, I guess, sort of a little midlife crisis where it was like, okay, I'm young for a hysterectomy, but I'm not that young. So working that out as well for me has really been really hard. And a lot of my friends and family and people around me haven't even started their fertility journey or, you know, um, having families yet whilst mine is over. Yeah. That's been hard. What tips would you give to others who might be experiencing something similar? I know you're so close to having, you've just had your op and you're only three weeks post op, but in this, you know, this new phase that you're in, what sort of tips would you give other listeners who are facing having a hysterectomy um, with dealing with this grief or loss of, you know, being able to choose to have more more children or, you know, coming to terms with their sexuality um, post-hysterectomy? Mm, it, is that, it is really fresh for me. I think also prior to my operation, I didn't feel like there was much much awareness about fibroids and since then I've spoken to a lot of family members or friends who know of people who have had hysterectomies for fibroids so um, I think just talking to people and just getting that reassurance from people that it actually is super common um, and you know it it can be fixed Um, in terms of the support, having a really great psychologist, if that's if that's what you know floats your boat. I'd, being kind to yourself for me, I I really I did actually get a second opinion after my after I was told that I should have a hysterectomy, um, and you know they sort of mentioned that I could get the marina put in, but because I had the cervical stenosis, they'd have to open me up to put the marina in, um, and for me. I guess there are always options and second opinions are really great. That was sort of good for me to think, okay, well, it's not a priority for me in my life right now because if that means that I was to have the marina put in and then it didn't, it got worse or it didn't work for me, then I'm going to have to go through this all again. So I think just having a bit more, a bit more reassurance in your own voice to say, okay, well, this is, although it's a choice that I'm making, it's, it's a choice to have a better quality of life. And I'm sort of excited by that too. I'm excited to sort of, you know, never have a period again, to never sort of, oh, you know, to never be in that pain that I was in. You know, it got to the point where my uterus actually got to the size of a rock melon. So when they when they took it out, um, they took out my uterus and my cervix because I had some adhesions in my cervix that they wanted to get rid of. Another thing is to go into your operation really open-minded because I had no idea that you could do that. Like, I had no idea that they could just take it. Like, okay, you have told me that that could be an option. Um, So just trust the process a little bit as well, I think, and trust the people who know what they're doing. Mm. Just being open to options and looking into second opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, educated on the choices that you're faced with and knowing what's best for you. Yeah. And also, you know, I think... If I had explored it a little bit more, I might not have made this choice, but then that was a choice in itself to make a decision wholeheartedly and say, you know, for me, I choose hopefully a better quality of life over trying a few different other 
you know, remedies. And, you know, I think since then I've heard some real horror stories about hysterectomies. So um, for me, it's been okay. It's definitely the physical toll. I don't want to scare anyone, but the, you know, the reality of it was the, the physical side of things was a lot harder than I sort of explained. A lot of people's expected, sorry. A lot of people sort of said, oh, you'll be fine. You know, you've had two cesareans whilst no, <laughs> it's not at all the pain. You know, my scar goes from hip to hip and the pain just from that alone and having all that moved around and shaken around, you know, for the first week or so, I felt like I felt all my organs moving around and just getting used to that feeling because I guess for my body, it's never not had that organ before. It's never not had a uterus. So it's probably like, look at all this space I have now that rock melon's gone. Look at all this space I can move around. Another reason why I wanted to sort of discuss it and talk about it was just how amazing the body is and how it's so resilient and even how it can just, you know, obviously we have to look after it, but how it can just bounce back so quickly. So true. Our bodies are amazing. and. Mm. I can so appreciate why you went for the option that gave you that quality of life because although your body is resilient and is amazing, it is also really hard and it does take that toll on the body, like you said. And if you can do something to actively try and improve that and hopefully make your quality of life better, then, of course, that's the option you'd go with. And I think, you know, the different thing about having the fibroids and having something like endometriosis is that, you know, fibroids, you can take out the, you can take out the uterus and everything around it and it's gone. Whilst I know with endometriosis, that's not always the case. It can grow back. Mm -hmm. So um, on the flip side of things that, you know, if I could have a choice in which I could just get rid of it, um, I guess I'm quite lucky for that. And for me, I had, I ended up having 10 fibroids and um, so they grew quite rapidly in between my initial diagnosis mm. and they were growing like in the walls of my uterus on the outside and, a, and they started growing towards other organs and also underneath the like the uterine lining and then that can crowd like the cavity and create really heavy heavy bleeding so I know that there's a few other options to get them removed um, in which they can do that also wasn't an option for me due to the severity of the symptoms I think no and everyone needs to make the best choice for them based on their circumstances and what their specialist has said and you know exactly what you said your body is different to everyone else's and so yours was quite severe and other people they might be able to do the other options but you know you've got to find what works best for you yeah absolutely and you know I think also in hindsight, I actually found out from my surgeon that um, the person who did my second history, my second cesarean, had actually done a really poor job, and all my um, my uterus was actually stuck to my bowel and bladder, and that that probably should have been done better. So that's going to be now looked into um, in terms of you know what they could do. I'm not sure, and whether I want to follow it up in any other manner. But um, I think that that was really good for me to know as well because, you know, I felt really abnormal after that operation. So I think just the whole process has just allowed me to trust myself a bit more. Yeah, you know your body better than anybody else and that's exactly what you've said all throughout this is like trusting your body and knowing what's normal for you and what's not normal for you. 
and having the words just to articulate it. Like I think with period pain alone, it, it presents itself in so many forms. Like, you know, at one point I had, you know, numbing down my legs and I would sort of just collapse because the it was the fibroids were sitting on my, my nerves. So I would sort of, you know, my legs would just give way or um, another day I'd have really shocking migraines. And, you know, when you go to the emergency because you think, you know, you don't know what's happening and you try to articulate but yourself and you've got all these different symptoms from migraines to, you know, bloating and some things that don't relate but they do um so yeah a massive air hug or virtual hug over to you because what you've gone through is an absolute journey for lack of a better word but I'm so glad that you're over uh, the on to the other side and can start to you know build back some quality of life and be able to do the things that you love doing and go for a walk around the block, no yeah. matter how slow. <laughs> Maybe two blocks. Yeah. Two, blocks, two laps around the block. You can beat your neighbour. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to talk a little bit about some tips or things you might have for people who are going in for a hysterectomy and things that you might not have thought of before going in that now you're like, oh, things that I should have thought of. Yeah. Oh, I think I was surprised by how much you couldn't move initially. So getting your head around that, some practical tips. Underwear that sits quite high, that doesn't sit, you know, on your incision. I think that was a really good one. So at the moment I'm like living in the tightest Bridget, Bridget Jones diary, the Bridget Jones undies. Um, and that's also to keep, I think it's also to keep yourself all sucked in and together. Um, so that's a really good tip. I found it really hard to eat the first few days um, and drink water. So I guess drinking lots of water. I think a few days after my surgery, I had a dry kidney. So I imagine that was probably because I didn't have much water. So keeping the fluids up, um, sleeping when you can, having one of those triangle pillows. Oh, yeah. Amazing. They amazing. are amazing. <laughs> even for just laparoscopies, if you, even if you're not having a hysterectomy, laparoscopies, the triangle pillows are the best. Uh, and heaps of pillows, actually. I sort of came home and realised that I needed probably more pillows than I had. So my auntie went out and bought a crap load of pillows. So I've just got pillows everywhere. Um, 90s. 90s I'm trying to think of all the practical things but I just lived in 90s for a little while as well because just to keep that you know any sort of pressure off that incision and I yeah keep up with the medication as well and just keep taking it when you can um oh there's so many more things I can't really think right now did you have um any family or friends or a support network that could help post-op and how important has that been post-operatively for you I recognised in myself that I'm really poor at asking for help. So prior to the operation, I really had to tell myself that if people offer support or offer help, take it and just think of, you know, just think of a job that they can do. Just think of something that might be really small that makes a big difference. And I had a lot of people come over and bringing meals and, um, you know, just coming over and just sitting in bed with me and just talking to me, a lot of friends and family and a lot of the practical things, you know, having two small kids as well, having my auntie and my mum here to clean and help out. And, um, yeah, I definitely think that there's no, 
there's no shame in asking for help, particularly at this time. Um, and people want to help as well. Allowing people in and allowing people to help, I think that that's really important. Um, and al allowing yourself to feel vulnerable as well and to feel like you need that support and probably also being flexible as well like we talked a little bit before we started today about you know not looking at what's on the floor and trying to let that go a little bit and because you know you can't bend over post-op yeah but yeah that's so true and I think with having two young kids I didn't realize how many things I would do around the house that weren't important like I would sort of prior to that I would potter and do you know pick up things off the floor and just do little jobs that really weren't that important or important at all you know I would do 10 jobs you know 10 jobs half well instead of doing two really good jobs of things so I think um just knowing where to spend your energy and your time and yeah what you need to invest in Mm. And if that means that I'm going to have a messy house for the next six weeks and I'm going to have a messy house as long as I recover and mentally and physically um, or asking those people that have you know, offered support, can you come over and pick everything up off the floor? <laughs> Exactly, you offered yeah, to help. <laughs> exactly, this is you here now, <laughs> um, and not being yeah, not being afraid to ask for help. I think we all do, but I try and think from my point of view. They wouldn't offer if they didn't want to, and so they're being genuine in asking. And you're not a burden. And yeah, when it's their turn, or if they're having a problem or anything, that you would return that favor for them. So you need to accept it. And also on the flip side of that is, um, for me, I struggled with not being disappointed with people who you'd think would step up. I think, um, you know, I don't think people understand sometimes how big the operation is. And for people of my age, you know, they probably don't know many people that have had hysterectomies and they don't understand the physical toll it has on your body. So just, you know, in my own friendship circle, sort of knowing who to go for, for what, and knowing that, you know, if I need something, maybe that friend isn't going to give me what I need at that time. But mm -hmm. later on down the track or in a different phase of what I need, they might be able to offer me that, you know. So learning that not everybody steps up to where you might want them to and that's okay as well. Mm, definitely. That mm. is so true. Um, and also people cope differently. You know, it's it's quite a it's quite a traumatic thing and it might be a trigger for someone else and what they went through. So yeah, it's just not putting those expectations on accepting help when it's offered to you and not feeling bad about that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today, Elisa? Just to be kind to yourself, I think, and to be compassionate. If you can, if you know someone that's going through, you know, anything related to, you know, these issues, whether it be hysterectomy or, you know, battling, you know, all of all of the stuff that goes along with those sorts of issues, whether it be endometriosis or polycystic ovaries. And for me, it's learning that there are a lot of other things out there too that can cause a lot of grief for people so just being compassionate towards others and what they're going through and yeah like I said trust yourself and trust your body and you know I do certainly have a compassion for people who have to keep going you know with endometriosis or you know all of these other symptoms for me I hope I hope that now that it you know I've 
had a hysterectomy that a lot of those issues will be gone. So I myself have a lot of compassion who just have to keep on and keep keep living their life with chronic illnesses. Um, I think that that can be really debilitating and just being, you know, not able to do the things that you want to do is hard. Thank you so much for your opinions, your vulnerability and openness today. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you, Elisa. Thank you so much for coming on Let's Talk Period. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Period with Alyssa Harris. If you enjoyed our chat with Alyssa and want to keep up to date with her, you can follow her on Instagram right here at Alyssa underscore Levain underscore. And if you want to keep updated with what we're up to, you can follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Period AU. Let's Talk Period is an independent podcast, so if you did enjoy this episode, we would absolutely love it if you followed us on Spotify or subscribed on Apple Podcasts. And if you are so inclined to want to help us out, the best way you can do that is to show how you're listening. Tag us on Instagram or Instagram stories and show us how you're listening to our podcast. This helps to get the word out to your friends and family and to help others find us as well as make our day. Also, a little shameless plug in here, but our Quendo app has launched on the App Store in Australia and New Zealand. It's now available in the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store and you can download it right now. Record, track, journal and understand your symptoms. Communicate them with your healthcare team. It is not just a period tracker. The Quendo app has your back. Download it now with the links in our show notes or search Quendo in your app store. Let's Talk Period is a production of Quendo, a non-for-profit organisation supporting anyone affected by endometriosis, adenomyosis, PCOS or infertility. Let's Talk Period is produced for educational purposes and the information, recommendations and topics talked about does not constitute medical advice or take into consideration your personal circumstances or medical history.